Let's Talk Native is produced at the Eltian Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for Native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. So you're going, welcome to Let's Talk Native. Uh, I guess I got to say welcome back. Um, look, I, I've, I took a bit of a break, and um, I can't really make apologies for it because part of the reason I took such a long break was my grandson, uh, was who's been playing in his senior year of basketball, high school basketball, was in the playoffs, and so I took a lot of time off to, uh, to travel to those games. Uh, so so that's, that's part of the, the reason for this, the short hiatus. Um, but look, the last few times that, I, that I've spoken, uh, a lot of it has been on the Seneca gaming mess, as I call it. And, and I, want to, I want to address that again today. And, but, but I've got to say right out of the gate here, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act is racist. Yep, I know. Some of you are going to say, oh, there he goes, throwing the race card out there. But, but again, we, we have to get back to understanding what the word racist and racism means. Racism is about power. Racism is about asserting power over a distinct people, race, ethnicity, whatever, a distinct people. The Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, when it was passed, had no pre-existing, there, there was no pre-existing federal statutory controls over native gaming. In fact, the Supreme Court upheld the Cabazon uh, band of mi uh, Mission Indians doing a, a bingo hall in, in, uh, in California because there was no underlying existing federal statute. So the federal government quickly, within you know, a little over a year after that Supreme Court ruling, the federal gov government scrambled to create a law. Now, why did they want to create a law? Well, part of it is they were afraid that now that there was a Supreme Court ruling that made it clear that native gaming was legal, because we always said native gaming was legal. In fact, as it turns out, it was always legal. The Supreme Court even acknowledged that. They didn't make it legal. They just put a stamp on it and said, yeah, they have a legal right to do this. So Congress, both the Senate and the House, they scrambled to say, look, if there's no underlying federal statute, we need to create one, create one. We got to get one fast. So out of thin air, they created the authority to regulate native gaming and then bestowed some of that regulatory authority on the states. So they didn't have the authority. They just created it. And so they targeted a specific race of people, native people, to take our control away from what was kind of rapidly becoming a burgeoning business. And, and I, it isn't just a business. Native gaming, for many places, is the sole source of public finance for native communities. Entire native governments are funded by, the, by gaming. Now, there's, there, there are other means of, uh, of funding. There's some federal funding that comes in. But frankly, the more successful a gaming uh, people, a people that, that, you know, that a nation that has gaming has been, the less federal funds go to those, uh, those territories. So gaming created a level of financial independence, but, it, but more importantly, it created, again, the sole source of public finance. We don't have taxes on our territory. We don't tax our people. We don't pull pieces of their income away. We don't charge them when they buy something or when they sell something. That's, that's what everybody else does. That's what states do. That's what the federal government does. In fact, many territories are shy so completely away from the idea of taxation that they are even hesitant to charge for certain things like licenses and, and that kind of stuff. So our entire 
model of public finance on native territories has to do with the nations themselves being in business. Now, there's private sector businesses in native territories as well, but even those private sector businesses don't necessarily contribute to the, the pot of public finance. All of that comes from the enterprises that the nations themselves, the nation governments are somehow involved in. And gaming is, is one of the primary ones. So, look, there are some things like mineral extraction, mining, and some other things uh, you know, that are involved here that frankly create a little bit of cognitive dissonance for native people. And, and, and for many people, gaming does too. I mean, we, we understand that gaming is not you know, uh, the most culturally satisfying um, activity for us to be involved in. But it gave us a means to bring much needed financial resources into our territories. And we, we don't take it from our own people. Our primary patronage for, uh, for native gaming is not, it isn't the native people themselves, it's the, it's the surrounding community. Now, not every place can pull this off. If you don't have a population around your territory, it is really difficult to turn a native territory into a tourist destination. I don't care how big a casino you create. If you don't have a, um, a sizable population around you, native gaming is not necessarily a golden goose in all instances. So when IGRA was passed, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, it essentially created barriers. It, it created obstacles for, for native gaming. So you took a field of play that was totally in our control, and then the federal government a year after the Cabazon case, creates the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And it is a law that is specific to Native people. For all the talk about critical race theory, the intersection of, of race and racism and law, there's no, there are no greater examples of critical race theory than the history of US laws that, that have targeted Native people in everything from stealing our kids for residential schools to limiting what we can, the activities that we can do in our territories to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. So this law has created a thin air and, and produces a federal statutory framework where none had, had, had existed before. And we weren't at, weren't at the table. We weren't even a part of any of this. This was crafted by, you know, again, primarily by white people. Now, part of the uh, the argument they made was, well, Native people have to be protected, as if we were incompetent. So this is, again, not only is it racist because the, the law targeted Native people, and it created barriers for us to, to do something that, we, frankly, we were already somewhat engaged in. Not so much on full-fledged casino gaming, but, but some of that. But it created these barriers, and, it, and part of the rationale for creating those barriers was that somehow we were vulnerable people, that we were insufficient at, uh, you know, at fending off corruption, organized crime, you know, vulture capitalists, um, you know, aggressive or assertive management corporations, you know, financiers, all, all this stuff. So they create, they, they, they claim they create the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act to somehow protect us. Very little of that gaming act addresses the fact that the states are oftentimes the aggressor here. Although the claim is that the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act was supposed to protect us from, uh, from, from over, overly aggressive states. It was supposed to ensure that states entered into the, the required gaming compacts um, and negotiated those things uh, you know, with, with honor, dignity, and, and, and that they, they didn't screw us over. Of course, the problem isn't just that the law is racist. The oversight, the implementation, the, uh, you know, the enforcement of IGRA is also racist. This law has existed for over 30 years. And there are some basic questions that have never even been, been addressed. The Seneca Nation has been involved in gaming for almost 20 years. The first 14 years of their, uh, of their gaming operations, they had a clear uh, provision in their gaming compact where the state was supposed to create an environment that 
allowed the Senecas to have an area of uh, free of competition. So this exclusivity that the state was giving was going to be afforded to the Senecas in exchange for a fairly sizable amount of, the, of their revenue, from, uh, specifically from, from slot machines, from the electronic gaming. It started out with 18% of the net slot drop, increased to 22% of the net slot drop. And for, the, for 14 of those seven years, it was 25 of the net slot drop. So what does net slot drop mean anyway? Is that even an accounting term? No, here's what net slot drop is. Net slot drop is all the money that goes into the slot machines minus the payout, that's the net slot drop. So the payouts come out first, and then 25% goes directly to the state. The remaining amount of money is everything that the, that, the, that the Senecas have to use to run the whole casino. Everything from paying for the machines, leasing the machines, the licensing, the insurances, the upkeep, the maintenance, the, uh, the, the cocktail waitresses, the, uh, you know, the people who service the, ma the machines, do the payouts and, and, and provide security replacing the carpet, the seats, the, the, the lights, renovating every couple of years to keep the, the casino in, in tip-top, you know, a, a world-class facility. All of the management, all of the financing, all of, you know, every contractor. So all of the expenses come out of the Seneca's 75%. So what is really 25% of net slot drop? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's like 50% of the net revenue of those slot, slot machines. The state, with no investment, with no stake, they aren't shareholders or stakeholders in the casinos, but they get 50%. And sometimes, depending on you know, the, the cycle of renovations and construction and, and other, other expenses that, that are not necessarily a monthly expense, sometimes it was over, over 50%. So on some occasions, New York State was getting more revenue out of the Seneca slot machines than the, Seneca's, than, than the operation was essentially, than the Senecas were. And keep in mind, the profit from these casinos funds entirely the nation. I mean, so the entire source of public finance for the Seneca Nation comes from these gaming sources. And they've got to split it with the state because of this lopsided revenue sharing agreement. But you know what? It is what it is except it, what is, it isn't necessarily what it is. Because that so-called exclusivity, the state wordsmithed the language of that so much that they actually carved it up so that the only thing the state was really prohibited from doing was class three gaming. They could do, they could expand their lotteries. In fact, they turned their, their racetracks into casinos. They just kept it just this side of, of a class two a gaming facility. They filled it with slot machines. They had slot bars. They advertised it up and down the throughway. The you know, Hamburg Casino, Batavia Downs Casino, Finger Lakes Casino. And all three of those were in the area that the Senecas were supposed to have exclusivity. And the state says, well, yeah, but we, we didn't put in class three slots. We didn't open up a a full-fledged class three casino, but you still took market share. You violated the value of what the concession was supposed to be, which was a exclusivity, a, 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 an area of non-competition. You were the competition. You were already the competition with your lottery that you expanded you know, during the same time period, but then you built casinos out of your racetracks. And before that 14 years was up, the last four, maybe even five years of, of, of that, that exclusivity, you pursued changing your state constitution to allow you to do class three gaming. Let me back up. <laughs> On that note, it wasn't the compact. It wasn't the exclusivity provision and the revenue sharing provision that stopped the state from doing class three gaming in Western New York. It was their own laws. The reason the, the, that New York State supported Seneca Gaming, particularly in Western New York and in Niagara Falls, was because they saw a constant flow of money going across the border to the, to the casinos on the Canadian side in Ontario. They were hoping 
that the Senecas could produce a market that would, that would not just capture, but prevent much of that money from going across the border. Because you know why? Because every dollar that the Senecas raised, regardless of, of whether it went into the nation coffers or just went out immediately to, for the operations, the state benefited from. They benefit from every bit of the income tax that, that the employees pay. The overwhelming majority of employees of Seneca Gaming are non-native. They pay state income tax. They pay property tax. They pay sales tax. They pay you know, capital gains tax. They pay, they pay their taxes. So even without revenue sharing, the state in many ways, by any true analysis of, of, of economics, is the primary beneficiary of Seneca Gaming. Because the Senecas have no means to have that money come into their territory and stay there for any length of time. Whether they give it to the individual Senecas or whether they spend it on services or spend it on their operation, that money leaves our territories almost immediately. Now, that's not the evil doings necessarily of the state. But when 50% of the revenue is taken off the top through these revenue sharing agreements, and then you do a proper analysis on the on what the concession was, this revenue sharing was supposed to be based on exclusivity that never really existed. To the, to the extent the state could compete against the Senecas, they did compete against the Senecas. They, they grew their, uh, their gaming revenue in lotteries, in um, the racetrack casinos, and ultimately they passed a change in their constitution that allowed them to to authorize, license, and, uh, and support Class 3 gaming facilities, casinos. And one of the first ones built, it was just on the edge of that exclusivity zone, but clearly, Delago Casino and Resort was capitalizing on the market that the Senecas had built. Now, let me also say that the state had tried for years to change its laws to allow them to do, do casino gaming. They saw you know, what Nevada and New Jersey and other places that had gaming, what, that they were able to, you know, um, create revenue. But they couldn't do it. Because here's the thing, to change your state constitution, you have to pass this amendment, this change, through two successive state legislatures. So it means you got to pass it this year, and then you got to propose and pass it the next year. And then it can go to public referendum. The state had done it a couple of times. They'd passed the, the uh, pass it through the legislature before, but they never put two successive leg legislatures together to pass it, and they never went to public referendum. Why? And why didn't it pass twice? Because the public sentiment was, was against gaming. So how did that change? Well, I'll tell you how it changed. The state used Seneca Gaming to make casino gaming acceptable. In fact, the state went about bragging. Andrew Cuomo went about, oh, we're in, already in, into casino gaming. We're doing it by proxy, essentially. We're doing it through our native partners. I mean, they were almost uh, you know, taking some sort of, demonstrating some sort of ownership or participation in, in native gaming. Why? Because they were making money off of it. So they rode the backs of the Seneca Nation to create the gaming market and to create the acceptability to New York State voters. So the state used the Senecas to change their laws so they could get involved in gaming. And all the while, they're involved in the regulatory process of native gaming, of Seneca gaming, Oneidas, Mohawks. So they're learning the business, they're creating the, uh, uh, off of, they're learning the business while somebody else creates the market that they can come in and take. And they can take it because those compacts, while they very much restrict and detail what the native gaming operation can do, it doesn't restrict, at least not in total, what the states can do, how much they can change their laws. I mean, look, the idea of creating these racetrack casinos, they first had to come up with tweaking the definition of a class two machine versus a class three machine so they can have a machine that sits there that looks exactly like a slot machine, plays like a slot machine, but argue that it's not a class three slot machine. So they had to tweak their laws. They had to have some technological advances from the gaming market. They said, give us a slot machine that's not really a slot machine. And that's what they did. 
since then, they obviously they changed their laws to allow them to do class three gaming. Built a a major casino between Rochester and Syracuse. And now today, they have gone all in on sports betting. Uh, initially, all of the sports betting had to take place inside their casinos, in, inside the state-licensed casinos. Then they allowed online betting. Now you can get an app on your phone. In New York State, you can make bets, sports bets, on, on your phone. So, and... And there's no exclusivity on this thing. You can do this in Western New York. You can do this in the states, in, in the Seneca Nation exclusivity zones. So the state has continued to grow. So this is where, where, where the problem is. So at the end of that 14 years, and, and I know some of you know this, but I've, I've got to go through this again. At the end of those 14 years, the Seneca stopped paying. And the state says, well, well you can't stop paying. He says, there's no language in the, in the compact that says we pay past 14 years. It says 18% for the first couple of years, 22% for the next five years, 25% for the next seven years. There's no language in the compact that even mentions either the percentage or the, uh, the extension of payments through, the, uh, through the, the seven years that we're currently in from 2017 to 2020 through 2023. There's not a word of it. It's not in there. So the Seneca said, we never agreed to pay for 21 years. We only agreed to pay for 14. So the state takes them to arbitration, uh, an arbitration hear hearing. Three judges are, 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 are placed in, in this arbitration panel. Two of them, the two white guys, rule in favor of the state. Now, again, in order for them to rule in favor of the state, they had to first suggest that there was ambiguity in the, in, the game, in the gaming compact. When there really is no ambiguity because there's no language in there. They had to suggest, and they had to go outside the legal doctrine that's called the, the, the Four Corners Doctrine of Contract Law. They had to say, even though it's not in there, we think it's in there. So they had to, they had to argue that there was ambiguity. Now, the funny thing about ambiguity when it comes to, uh, to Native people is that there's this thing called the canons of statutory construction that apply to treaties, laws affecting Native people, contracts that Native people uh, enter into. And what the, those canons of statutory construction say is that if there's ambiguity in agreement with Native people, that ambiguity has to be interpreted in favor of the Native people. That's, it's a federal legal doctrine. It's not something that we made up. And frankly, part of the reason it even exists, again, goes back to this idea that somehow we are, are less competent. And, uh, and so the federal government says, yeah, these Native people aren't as sophisticated as the, as the white people drawing up these documents. So if the white people create ambiguity, we've got to read this in favor of the uh, Native people. But those two guys on the, on, on the arbitration panel didn't do that. They rejected the canons of statutory construction. And they created in their own minds ambiguity and then used that ambiguity to rule in favor of the state. The other guy was Chickasaw, a former assistant secretary to the interior, Kevin Washburn. Kevin Washburn said, those two men just rewrote the compact. So the state gets its arbitration ruling, which is supposed to be binding. And the Senecas know that it's supposed to be binding. But the question that the Senecas have isn't just whether the state violated the compact. And this is where this thing gets, gets a little difficult. It's not whether the state violated the compact necessarily. That's one of the arguments that's made. But does changing the compact, even if it's through an arbitration panel, should that change require the Interior Department to approve the change. And if it does, can the entire Interior Department approve a provision that is changed, not by the Senecas, that's not negotiated, but is being imposed on the Senecas, that forces them to pay, even though the Senecas never agreed to pay? So can the Interior Department approve a change that is being imposed on the Senecas? And of course, anybody with any logic or, or common sense 
would say, no, they can't do that. They can't, they can't approve a change that the syndicates don't agree with. And it doesn't matter if they agreed to, to binding arbitration. That, that binding arbitration doesn't give the arbitrators the, 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 the free will to, to change the compact without some federal oversight. So that's what the Senecas have been arguing since the arbitration ruling, that the federal government needs to review the change in the, in the compact. That's one of the arguments. Now, the other argument goes back to what I was talking about earlier. If the, if the Senecas are giving the state almost 50%, or in some cases over 50% of their revenue, and they're not getting something of equal or greater value in exchange, under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and the language associated with revenue sharing that comes from the Interior Department that says states can't tax native territories for their gaming. They can't tax the gaming operation. They can negotiate some of the costs associated with, with regulation that they, that they share in and get some reimbursement for that, which is a whole other issue. And, or they can give to the gaming operation, give to the nation some concession that has substantial and quantifiable value. Now, by substantial, it, it means that they have to give something that is of equal or greater value than the money that they were, would receive. Now, in order to determine that, you have to be able to quantify the value of the state's concession, which is this exclusivity. That was never done. There was never any third-party industry evaluation of what the state was calling exclusivity. And if you delve into it, you realize that there was never any real exclusivity given up. The fact that the state couldn't do class three gaming was not given up in the exclusivity. It was prohibited by their own laws until they changed it. And changing that law actually violated the exclusivity provision. So even if you argue that the state was giving some hint or suggestion of exclusivity, if you were to place value on that, not knowing how much the state could compete within that exclusivity zone, once you learned that the state could compete, you realized, well, that exclusivity is not worth much. It diminishes in value. It diminished with every, every brand new scratch off that they introduced in the market, every slot machine they put in a racetrack, every casino, they, uh, every law change that they made, allowing them to do like class three gaming and, and building a casino that taps into the Seneca gaming market like Delago does. Every additional gaming, um, uh, you know, addition like sports betting, both in the facilities and now anywhere, mobile sports betting. Every one of those things diminished the value of the exclusivity, if it existed at all, which I argue it didn't. And, and, and look, let me, let me explain why I argue it doesn't. What creates a better competitive advantage for the Senecas? Paying almost 50% of their revenue that they can't use for either the Seneca people or in, in their operation? Or, and, and paying all that for an exclu exclusivity that doesn't really stop the state from being your competitor or keeping that money? Uh, Delago. The operators of Delago said, well, we can't compete with the Senecas if they're not paying. Well, what does that say? That says that, says that the Senecas are more competitive by keeping their revenue than buying some illusion of an exclusivity. No one in their right mind would dare build a casino next to a Seneca casino that has been in operation and successful for you know, almost 20 years in the Niagara Falls case, but but something less than that for the other two. Nobody would build a casino within close proximity of a Seneca casino, knowing that they would have to pay 30, 40, maybe more of their operating capital, of, of, their, of their revenue to the state when the Senecas don't have to pay anything. That, that disparity in what the, what the state gets from those casinos, that disparity alone creates exclusivity for the Senecas. Nobody's going to propose or finance 
a casino where they have to operate at such a steep disadvantage to Seneca Gaming? In fact, Delago hasn't had that steep disadvantage and still hasn't been very successful. In fact, none of the state authorized casinos have been terribly successful. Why? Because gaming is not recession proof. It's not COVID proof. And gaming can be if impacted by a saturated market. There's all kinds of gaming out there. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Canada, New Jersey, Connecticut. I mean, there's, there's lots of competition out there. Some native, some non-native. There's lotteries everywhere. And now you can sit at home with, the, with an app on your phone and place bets on, on, sports, uh, on sports activity from your home. doesn't matter if you're sitting in, in the exclusivity zone of the Senecas. If you're paying for something that you're not getting, if the state's concession turns out not to be substantial, let alone quantifiable, substantial enough, then under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, it's unlawful. If the Senecas don't benefit from the exclusivity enough, if they're just paying for what, for goodwill? Because arguably, the revenue sharing has more to do with buying goodwill from the state than it does getting anything from the state. That's illegal. So that's the other question. The other question is the current status of the revenue sharing agreement, because it has changed. If there was exclusivity at all, it certainly has diminished. And how do I know that? Because the, the National Indian Gaming Commission even acknowledges it. The Interior Department acknowledges it. They know that the Seneca's overpaid tremendously, grossly overpaid, they paid more to the state than was ever anticipated in the revenue sharing provision of the, of the compact. And they did it in spite of the state being their, their biggest competitor in that market, still being the biggest competitor in that market. They paid the state far more than the state ever anticipated, $1.4 billion. It would have been 1.6 for that 14 years, that 14 year period. It would have been 1.6 had the, had the Senecas not said, hey, wait a minute, you're taking some of our market with these racetrack casinos. And so they withheld and the state willingly surrendered $200 million in that confrontation over their, the racetrack casino. They didn't close them. They started, they stopped calling them casinos and they, and they had to rely on calling them racinos. That's the only concession, $200 million. But then the Senecas continued to pay until 2016. Now, why didn't the Senecas argue that they, that they needed to diminish the percentage paid? Well, part of it is they saw light at the end of the tunnel. They knew when they settled this thing in 2013 that if they just paid through 2016, they would no longer be paying after that. And so better to get out of this thing. There was an automatic renewal as, nobody, as long as nobody had any, uh, you know, Issues with the 14-year period would renew automatically for another seven years. And the funny thing is, the state knew that there was language problems. How do we know that? Well, we know that there were folks in Niagara Falls who said, you know, there's no language in the, in the compact that says the Senecas pay for the next seven years. And the state said, oh, don't worry about it. We, we got that handled. It, it doesn't say it, but we feel pretty strongly that, uh, that it's implied. So the, the state had an opportunity between the end of the 14-year compact and the, and the renewal period, actually in the 120 days prior to the automatic renewal, the state could have said, hey, we need to fix that language. But they didn't. And you know what? The Seneca's never said, hey, you know, we don't pay you after 20, uh, 2016, you know. The Seneca's never brought it up either. So nobody argued to change the language in the compact. So it renewed with the language that had no mention of paying from 2017 through 2023. So now we're at 2022. The Senecas haven't paid since 2017, but that money has been escrowed. It sits there in an account. And the state wants it. And they want it bad. In fact, the state's threatening to take it. The, the state today is threatening to seize the, uh, the money. Now, the, the Senecas were almost prepared to let that money go. But enough people, including the women in Seneca territory, forming a group they called the, the Seneca Mothers, insisted that they did not make that payment until there was some acknowledgement from the federal government 
that that payment was, was legit. So what did they get? Well, there was an investigation going on, not by the Interior Department, by the National Indian Gaming Commission. Ironically, <laughs> the Interior Department said, we won't review this extension period or the revenue sharing provision unless both parties ask us to. Wait a minute. So if you're the victim of a crime, you have to have the accuser agree to be investigated too? This is a crime. This is extortion. And the Interior Department, rather than saying, yes, we, we hear what the Senecas are saying, we need to investigate. They said, yeah, we hear what the Senecas are saying, but the state's not asking us to investigate. So we don't, we, we don't want to tread on the state. So you don't investigate the perpetrator of the crime merely because the victim of the crime asks you to. This gets to why I say that IGRA isn't the only racist part of this thing. It's the oversight, implementation, and enforcement. Nothing is being enforced against the state. So let me talk about this NIGC, this National Indian Gaming Commission investigation, which just ended this past week. I've got the letter here. This is, this, this is the letter from the um, National Indian Gaming Commission, and, and, and I'll read some of it because it demonstrates just how terrible these, these organizations that are supposed to enforce. I mean, this, this letter, this investigation was, was done by the chief compliance officer of, of the National Indian Gaming Commission, uh, Tom Cunningham. But as it turns out, they didn't really investigate the state. They investigated the Seneca Nation. They wanted to find if the Seneca Nation was violating IGRA. But let me, let me explain. So this letter is to the president of the Seneca Nation. It says, I am writing to inform you that the National Indian Gaming Commission has completed its investigation into the revenue sharing under the nation's gaming compact extension with the state of New York. The investigation focused on whether the payments and surrounding circumstances indicated that the state obtained a proprietary interest in the nation's gaming operation. Wait a second. You focused on whether the state had Gain, obtained a proprietary interest in the gaming? That wasn't the question. The question is whether the revenue sharing is still is legal or not. The question is, did this forced extension of payments through the, through, through the compact extension, did that require, and would the Interior Department approve such a thing? Those are the questions being asked, not this. We investigated whether payments uh, of the revenue share during the seven-year renewal period would violate the, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act's requirement that the nation maintain the sole proprietary interest in and the responsibility for the conduct of any gaming activity. We will not be taking enforcement action against the nation and are closing this investigation. So, they were actually investigating whether the nation had violated the compact, or, or I'm sorry, violated IGRA by giving proprietary control to the state. And then they said, so we're not going to take any action against you. We're not, we're not finding you in violation. This wasn't about whether the Senecas were in violation. This is about whether the state is in violation. But that's not what was investigated. Now, the crazy part is, what this guy is investigating was never intended to be an oversight of the state. He explains, he says, the National Indian Gaming Commission reviews three factors to determine whether a third party, and that third party is never the state. That third, star, third party is organized crime, financiers, you know, um, management companies, anybody who has somehow positioned themselves to have control over revenue, operation, and uh, you know, of, of the gaming operation. But, but let, me, let me explain. He said, to determine whether a third party has obtained a proprietary interest in a tribe's gaming operation. Then he goes on to explain what would constitute a, a proprietary interest. Use the, the right, one, the right of control provided to the third party over gaming activity. Well, actually, the state does have some control over that. That's what the gaming compact was for. That's what IGRA was for. The IGRA was passed 
to give the state some control over gaming operations. So that should be a no-brainer, you would think. Number two, the term of the relationship. Well, these gaming compacts, the Seneca's gaming compact was for 14 years with a seven-year extension. That's 21 years. That's a long term by any, that's a, that's a pretty long term by any standard. So, so, well, geez, the state must be in violation then. And three, the compensation to the third party. Accordingly, final agency actions by NIGC or the uh, Office of General Counsel uh, Legal Opinions have found an improper proprietary interest in agreements under which a party other than the tribe receives a high level of compensation for a long period of time and possess some aspect of control. So that's what they're saying. So in other words, if a third party is getting substantially compensated, has some control over, uh, over the operation, and has that control for a, an extended period of time, that is improper pr proprietary interest. So here's where the problem is. <laughs> the problem is that this wasn't geared to investigating states. In fact, it says so in the fourth, in the fourth paragraph. This is the first time NIGC has applied the sole proprietary interest factors to a tribal state compact. And the agency has acknowledged that tribal state compacts are fundamentally different than agreements it has reviewed in the past. By law, compacts between Indian tribes and a state provide a regulatory clause or, or, um, for regulation of, of a class three gaming. Look, it's, it's built into the law. The law requires that the state have some control. So this whole investigation centered around the fact that the state could not be in violation of this proprietary interest requirement because the controls they were given came from the, the, the federal statute. The terms were encouraged under the federal statute, the long terms, these seven years. In fact, this guy goes on to say that, and, and again, let me, let me read from, from, you know, from this, this, this crazy document. Through inquiry and review of the documentation, we investigated where the state exercised control over the nation's gaming beyond, beyond what IGRA provided and what is required within the compact. And we determined that it did not. So in other words, we know the state has, has, been, has taken some control, but it's not beyond what IGRA said they could. So it's not a violation. Unlike other agreements where a lengthy term may suggest an, uh, an ownership interest, stabil the stability afforded by lengthy compact terms is a great benefit to tribes. Now, this is just a statement he makes. And arguably, it's just false. I mean, it's either a false assumption or an outright lie. There's no way you could suggest that the Senecas gain stability by being bound to a compact for 14 years and then forced forced to pay for another seven years while the state could change their laws, alter the market, take some of the market created by the Senecas. That's not stability. And it doesn't matter how successful the Seneca gaming operation was. And they were successful in spite of this instability in the market. The instability in the market, sure, it was impacted by recession perhaps and maybe COVID, but it, the market has been more impacted by the changes that the New York that New York State can make, they created instability. So this guy says basically because, and again, it, it, it creates stability. And as such, the term of the compact does not raise a sole, sole proprietary interest concern. So even though the state has control over the gaming operation, some, and even though it, it has a long-term relationship, Neither one of those things, if, uh, of course, if those things were applied to somebody else, it would be a um, proprietary interest concern. But when it's the state, it doesn't. Finally, they examined the compensation due to the state for the period of the compact. And then here they go into saying, well, but the state gave them something up, gave up something for it. This guy even includes stuff that had nothing to do with revenue sharing. He mentions the fact that the, that the Senecas bought the Niagara Falls Convention Center for, for a dollar. Well, there's a reason it sold for a dollar. 
It was a dilapidated building that cost Niagara, the city of Niagara Falls over a million dollars a year. The Senecas purchasing that building took it off the hands of the city. And they did it with a commitment to dump hundreds of millions of dollars into that facility to create a tourist destination. Something that benefited the city directly, even without re revenue sharing. It took away the eyesore. It built a, 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 a class, a world-class gaming facility in one, at the site of one of the seven wonders of the world. So the Senecas did a huge favor taking ownership of the, of, of the property. This, Mr. Cunningham also suggests that the, um, uh, that the state was, would provided help in the Senecas gaining um, restricted fee status to the land that they acquired. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. The Senecas have an act of Congress that allows them to do that. The Salamanca Lease Settlement Act, the last provision of the Salamanca Lease Settlement Act from 1990 provides that the Senecas can acquire lands within, the lost, within their, their ancestral homeland. And they could use the funds that they received, $60 million they received in that settlement, they could use those funds to purchase land. That's, how, that's why the land wasn't taken into trust. It wasn't a fee to trust transfer. This was land that was taken into fee status, which is outright primary title to land. It's not a, a New York State deed. It's a Seneca deed. That land is held by the Senecas directly. Not through trust, but they hold it in restricted fee. And restricted fee just means they can't sell it under, you know, under a federal statute. They can't sell, sell the land uh, you know, without going through some, some other hoops. And if they do sell it, they can only sell it to the United States. That's the restricted fee. But the state didn't, the, in fact, the state couldn't offer any help. They, the state could agree not to, to fight it. But agreeing not to fight the, the transfer of that is not the same thing as agreeing, uh, providing any tangible benefit to help. And the third part was, he said, they also used the state's eminent domain powers to make some of those properties, uh, some of that property available to the, the Seneca Nation. Well, the only land that the, the, the language of eminent domain was ever even mentioned for was what was called the Splash Park, the, the, the property next to the casino. And the Senecas paid three times the market value for that property. Eminent domain, when used under the state's power, should have made that property available to Senecas at market value, not at three times the market value. So there was no eminent domain, real eminent domain usage to provide this property to the Seneca Nation. And, it's, and this is all about, just about Niagara Falls. And none of those three things were really the consideration for revenue sharing. And I must add also that the Senecas gave a huge concession as it relates to property acquisition. The Senecas actually took their Salamanca Lease Settlement Act and agreed in this compact that they would only acquire three commercial sites for gaming. That any other additional sites that they acquired, if they used it for, uh, used this land acquisition clause, it would only be for housing. That they would not acquire any other commercial properties. And they would reduce their land acquisition funds to $5 million. That is a huge concession. And it's a concession that is certainly more impactful than any of these things that this Thomas Cunningham just mentioned. It was also an unnecessary concession. Whatever lawyers suggested that somehow the Senecas should diminish their land acquisition ability to get the, states at the, the state at the table sh should lose his license to practice law. The only thing the, the state was giving up for revenue sharing was this myth of an exclusivity. But this compensation that the state gets this guy said, because they gave up these things for it, that it didn't wreck. So the three factors, the, uh, 
the op- control of the operation, the, the length of the term of a relationship, and the compensation, none of those three things could this guy say were violated by the state. Only because it was the state. If any other third-party interest had, had even a, a fraction of what the state had in terms of term of relationship, control of the gaming operation, or compensation, it would have been a violation. So why did this guy investigate this? Well, it's obvious. He narrowed the scope of this investigation so he would not have to find the state did anything wrong. In fact, he wasn't really investigating whether the state had done something wrong, but whether the nation had done something wrong by transferring proprietary interest to the state. Again, it's not just that the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act was racist. The oversight, the investigation, the enforcement, there's no enforcement on the state. And, and the mere fact that the Interior Department says we won't investigate unless the, state, unless the state also asks us to investigate is just, it's, it's a travesty. And, and I can only liken it to a victim of a crime needing the accuser to agree to an investigation because that's exactly what was said here. Now, I'm not saying that's going to that's gonna hold because in spite of the terrible nature of this so-called investigation, there were, there were a couple of admissions. At the very end of the, of the document, and this is the second to last paragraph, and I'll read it through. It says, the, the department, meaning the Interior Department, has since taken the position that its analysis, analysis did not include the seven-year extension. So in other words, when the, the Interior Department was approving the revenue sharing, they didn't approve it for the extension. They only approved it for the language that was covered in, in, in the 14-year period of, of, of the compact. As it turned out, over the length of the compact and subsequent extension period, the nation generated far more dollars for the state than projected, and the benefit of the exclusivity was reduced. Now, he suggests that the, that the benefit of, of the exclusivity was reduced by agreement of the parties, which isn't true. And here, he's referencing an MOU from 2023 when the impasse over withholding revenue sharing um, was, was settled. But the Seneca's never agreed that the state could reduce its exclusivity um, uh, um, benefit. The state did that on their own and would continue to do it. So while this guy is acknowledging that the state got paid far too much money and that the benefit of the exclusivity was reduced, he still doesn't address whether it's legal. It is clear, and I'll go on, it is clear that the, that the state has benefited substantially more than anticipated under the compact while the nation has received less. Well, that means it's illegal. I mean, that just means it's illegal. I mean, the, that determination that is so clear to Tom Cunningham that the state received more than it was than it should have, and the Seneca's got less, means that this that there was a disproportionate, uneven playing field associated with this revenue sharing, and that would that should have made it illegal. But then, but then he says whether the remaining exclusivity is still worth the bargained percentage of slots revenue would require further analysis. Where well, there you go, so. After the investigation, among the final determinations by Tom Cunningham, the chief compliance officer, is that further analysis must be done to determine whether it's even worth it for the Senecas to pay for this exclusivity. I mean, that's what he says. Of course, then he, <laughs> then he kind of backtracks by saying, nevertheless, exclusivity remains a benefit to the nation, and as such, revenue share does not on its own rise to the level of a sole proprietary interest violation. Then he says, we're done here. So, any investigation that was asked for, which was really not asked necessarily of just NIGC, the National Indian Gaming Commission, was really asked of the Interior Department to review the status of the extension period, and to make a determination that under the, the very strict test for what would constitute taxing gaming as opposed to 
sharing revenue, the state has failed. And, and as I said, there is no stability offered in long-term gaming compacts as long as the state can continue to change their laws. Look, they added class three gaming. They added sports betting. What's next? Are they going to make, make it so you can play slot machines on, on your phone? Buy lottery tickets on your phone? None of that is, 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 not, is outrageous. It's unreasonable. The reason the Senecas need to keep the revenue that they are generating here is because the gaming market isn't stable. This, the, the New York State is screwing the, the market. They're saturating the market. They've, they've done it with everything from scratch-offs to now sports betting and everything in between, from, from slot machines at racetracks to, to adding more casinos. And the state plans to expand these things. The, the governor is suggesting adding more casinos. And the threat is, if you don't pay us, we're going to put it in your backyard. And I say, go ahead, go for it. I dare anybody to, to buy the license, which the Senate is saying should be a billion dollars. Put up a billion dollars for a license. Then spend another half a billion to a billion building a facility. And then you try to stand alone beside the Seneca gaming operations, where they pay nothing and you pay 40 to 50% of your revenue to the state. How long do you think that'll last? DeLago can't even pay its finance fees. They've been, they've re been reduced to paying interest-only payments almost since they opened the doors. The state's best competitive advantage comes from not paying a dime to the state. It doesn't come from buying this false representation of, a, of an exclu exclusivity. It doesn't exist. To the extent the state has been legally able, not, and not bound by the compact, but bound by their own laws, to the extent that they've been legally able to compete against the Seneca Nation, they have done so. And they have done it on every turn. But the gaming market is not stable. And the reason it's not stable is because of, of state activity. Not because the Seneca Nation is making it unstable. And beyond, you know, things like a, like a pandemic and, you know, storms and, you know, natural disasters, the state has created more instability than any other factor here. So binding yourself to a 7, 14, 21, or worse yet, a perpetual compact with the state is the most unstable thing that the Seneca Nation can do. Now, we're not addressing whether the Senecas could do something to support Western New York. They want to build a bill stadium. Well, the Senecas could, could actually contribute to financing that and take some stake in, in, in a new bill stadium. Niagara Falls wants an event center. The Senecas could actually throw money in that. Better than giving it to the mayors of these towns to fill potholes with. That was never what revenue sharing was supposed to do. Rev even the revenue sharing that was turned over to the state and some of it coming back to the, to the municipalities in the area was supposed to benefit the economy. It was supposed to create tourism. None of those dollars, $1.4 billion, none of it came back to, to build up the, the tourism. In fact, a billion of it never came back at all. A billion of it just went to, went to Albany, never to come back. So while the vast majority of non-native people in Western New York believe wrongly that the Senecas should pay or must pay the state of New York, the law does not support that. In fact, the law opposes it. But unfortunately, the law is not being enforced. And the reason it's not being enforced is because those who are charged with enforcement are as racist as the law itself. And I don't care that you got Deb Haaland sitting as the Interior Secretary. She should address this. She should take on this issue. She knows about gaming. She actually was involved in the gaming of the Laguna Pueblo in, uh, in New Mexico as the state was trying to squeeze dollars out of them. She's not ignorant to this, uh, this scenario, but her silence is deafening.
The refusal of the Interior Department to investigate unless the state asks them to is racist. It is skewed against Native people. The fact that Tom Cunningham was investigating the Seneca Nation and not the state of New York is a travesty. It is racist. So, folks, I'm sorry I've been gone for a little bit, <laughs> but I'm back, and I will be making more noise about this as time goes on. You can count on it. I want to thank you for listening. Please understand the very specific things that I talked about here. It's important, and it's important that everybody, Native and non-Native, understand what, what's at stake here. I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh. Thank you.